This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. One of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. To do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Applos just might be the solution you're looking for. Go to nonprofit.applos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Now, on to the show. Have you ever wondered how philanthropy and charity first began? Well, the answer may surprise you. Author Paul Vallely has written a new book that serves as an encyclopedic review of the origins and history of philanthropy and charity over the centuries. The Greek roots for the word philanthropy refer to the love of humankind. And Paul argues that today, too many people and organizations have lost the true purpose of charity and offers a new way back to the roots of good philanthropy. Enjoy today's show. Paul, I so appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. You're the author of a new book entitled Philanthropy, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. Now, first of all, what prompted you to write this book, and why is it a must-read for nonprofit leaders, not to mention to donors who want to support today's nonprofits? was approached by a philanthropist who was aware there hadn't been a history of English philanthropy written for 50 years, and he asked me if I was interested in writing it. He'd read some of my other books thought about it and said, yeah, that'll be good. And he said, well, I'll give you a research grant for two years. Fortunately, it took me six years to do it. So I've ended up out of pocket, but that's philanthropy for you. So I started off with this vision of doing English philanthropy, but I quickly realized that you really can't do an isolated thing like that unless you're doing a kind of very academic text, because you've got to find out where philanthropy comes from and you've got to look at where it is now. And now it is, it is totally globalized. And so it makes no sense to look at English philanthropy. So I broadened it out to look at what in the end is Western philanthropy. It touches on a bit of China and a bit of bit of India and so forth. But basically, it's Western ph- philanthropy. And to find out where you start with that, you, you, you go back to the ancient Greeks. They invented the word, you know, phil, for love, anthropos, for human beings, love of mankind, love of humankind. And uh, and you start with, with, with the Greeks. The Greeks had this this notion, they called it liturgy, liturgia, uh, it's where our word liturgy comes from. And it was rich men were, and it was men, were expected to finance public projects. And it could be little things like, you know, paying for Aeschylus to write a play. Aeschylus was the first person who actually used the word philanthropy. Or, or sending a team a local from the city to the Olympics or whatever. Or it could be something huge like building a road or an aqueduct or a, a temple or something like that. And the idea was that you kind of contributed to society in this way. You got your prestige and status from it. Uh, the, the rich vied with one another to outdo their philanthropy. And so it was very much about 
social cement. It was a way of cementing a society together. So I looked at this, and then I realized that that was only half the picture right from the outset. And for the past 2,000 years, there have been two traditions of philanthropy. One is this Greek one, but the other one developed about the same time among the Jewish people in ancient Israel. And that was a much more religious vision that was focused on God had been generous in his creation. And so men and women had a duty to be generous to one another. And it was a duty, not just for the rich, you know, cementing society top down. It was a duty which fell on everybody. And interestingly, in Hebrew, the word for charity, tzedakah, is also the word for justice. So you get that idea that charity and justice are part of the same thing. And this, this idea that instead of it being a top-down thing, like the, um, uh, the Greek one, it was more two-way. It was you, God, and the community. And everybody in society was expected to take part in this vision. So there you are. You've got these two traditions. And then when you look at the history of philanthropy from then until now, you see those two approaches interleaved, interwoven, alternated. And there have been lots of different things that philanthropy is. And uh, so the message for uh, philanthropists today and nonprofit leaders is to expand your vision of philanthropy. Think about the Greek and the Jewish way. Think about the strengths of each of those and try to come up with a, a reformulation of philanthropy, which is, is more about that kind of mutual respect, leaning out and reaching out in partnership to people rather than a top down saying, you know, I made loads of money from business, so I know what I'm doing and I'll sort your problems out. Philanthropy has another side. So that's the, in a, in a nutshell, that's the thesis of the book. Well, thanks for that. I didn't realize that. That's fascinating. Well, I wanted to build off your clever title from Aristotle to Zuckerberg and by pointing out something that one of my previous guests on the show has shared. He made this startling statement. He shared that today we are living in a time where the greatest transfer of wealth is happening right now. Do you agree with this, first of all? And if so, what does this mean both for today's philanthropists and for nonprofits? Well, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all relative, you know, it's the greatest amount of, of money. Andrew Carnegie, the great American philanthropist, he was the richest man in the world and he gave away as much, relatively speaking, as anybody is doing today. So you, you've got to be comparative in your historical periods. And that's one of the, one of the virtues of the book is that it explores those, those kinds of twists and turns. But there's no doubt about it that this is a new, big, major era of philanthropy the role of it in international life has increased dramatically over the past two decades. There's now a quarter of a million philanthropy foundations. And of them, 75% have been founded in the past two decades. So there's been wow. this burgeoning. And between them now, those foundations control more than $1.5 trillion. So you look at something like the Gates Foundation, it's got a bigger budget than 70% of the world's nations. Uh, and when wow. Gates decided to spend on, on malaria research, the, the global funding on malaria research doubled overnight. So, I mean, philanthropy is now on an epic scale in the modern world. And the wealth and drive and business acumen of tech titans like Bill Gates has brought huge benefits for humankind. But it also has a, a downside as well, which I explore in the book. And that comes down to the question of, you know, they've given all this money away, but how wisely has it been spent? 
All right, excellent. Well, as you reflect on your research and look at today's context, do you think we're heading in the right direction? Or do you think we're heading in a direction that is not so much for the love of humankind, as you mentioned? Uh, both. There are philanthropists who take the the, the top-down approach and, and say, I know how to sort everything out. And, and they see situations and people as kind of problems to be solved. And then there are others who who enter into a kind of partnership with with the people on the ground. Uh, and that's the model that I that I advocate. And you can find examples of, of both. Or if you look at someone like Bill Gates, he set off with the top-down model, but he's learned over the years uh, that it has to be more complicated than that. And largely, Melinda has been very much a people person. Bill's a very tech person, very data-driven. But Melinda understands you can have the best solution to a problem in the world, but it'll make no difference if people don't actually want to uh, to adopt it and take it on board. And some philanthropists have gone through this learning process of seeing these two traditions of philanthropy and realizing there are strengths in both. But at the moment, the emphasis has perhaps been too much on the philanthrocapitalist model. Okay, that's great. Uh, we're going to get into more of that in just a bit. But before we do, I'm curious, you know, when it comes to your research for this book, what was your biggest surprise from your findings? Well, people suppose that philanthropy is about, you know, transferring money from the rich to the poor. But that, that is not the case. O- only about a fifth of the money donated by big givers goes to the poor. Uh, most of it goes on the arts, sports, teams, cultural pursuits, and huge amount on education and healthcare. So what you find when you study that is that the rich in the middle classes give to schools and hospitals attended by their own children. And so in a, in a, in a funny way, Philanthropy is kind of a benefit to their own elite group. And this is true in America. It's also true in the UK. So that idea that philanthropy is a kind of transfer of money, that's not the case. And uh, that was certainly a big surprise to me. Now, one of the terms, Paul, that you use in your book is the term philanthrocapitalist. Explain what you mean by that term and who are some modern day philanthrocapitalists that match your definition? Uh, it has its seeds in people like Andrew Carnegie, who was the first. He was the first man to say, "Let's apply business methods to philanthropy. Let's make philanthropy more business-like." And in the modern era, Gates is the obviously you know the mega example, but there are lots of others as well. Uh, people who pursue a policy of effective altruism, which means that you look at a problem and think, "How can this problem best be solved? What's the most efficient way of using my money?" And they they come up with matrixes of full of data and it's all kind of very coldly analyzed and it can have great success in certain kinds of problems like you know something simple like you know, where where you the, the theory of change of the nonprofit is something like you know supplying malaria nets well that's pretty obvious you know three dollars in one malaria net equals certain percentage of, of lives saved so that's easy to quantify, and, and the, the philanthropic capitalist model works well with that kind of thing. More complicated things, if, say, you wanted to improve the living conditions of people in a, in a poor area where they were struggling because of environmental pollution caused by some big oil company or some other kind of extractive mining industry or whatever, and you had to kind of look at the human rights implications of it, how the workers were treated, what the environmental considerations were. All of that is much more complicated. 
And the philanthropic capitalist model doesn't work so well on that. And so the danger with exclusively philanthropic capitalists is that you go for like the low-hanging fruit and the complicated, difficult situations get put on the back burner. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, including some from other countries, all trying to make their world better. So when you go to our website, you can also subscribe to my monthly leadership update in order to get more content, ask me questions, and discover additional information. Just look for the subscribe button on the right-hand side of the webpage. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, one of the things you argue in your book is that over the years, philanthropy lost an essential element, specifically as it entered the modern era. What is the essential element that was lost, and why is that so critical? Well, if you look back to that Jewish tradition, that was then carried on in Christianity right through the Middle Ages. We tend to kind of gloss over the Middle Ages, but they lasted a thousand years, you know, from the fourth century to the 14th. And there was a model there which was very unequal. It was pretty rough being a a peasant in feudal society, but there was a kind of system which had a certain kind of respect. People had a kind of place. And it came from the idea that the rich had a duty to help the poor. That was part of their religious duty. But the poor had a duty to pray for the rich because the idea was that God hears the prayers of poor men and women more than the, the rich. And so if the poor were praying for the rich, then the pray, that, you know, that was a good thing. So there was this kind of reciprocal, mutual thing. It was spiritual, not physical, but there was nonetheless this notion that everybody had a place. And yet even right through to you know, King Louis IX in France, in the 13th century, he was still washing the, the, the feet of the poor personally. So there was that kind of acknowledgement that uh, it was a kind of guard against hubris and pride. So there was a mutual respect. Now, when the Black Death came and the whole economy of Europe changed, the attitude of the rich to the poor changed for reasons I set out. It's really interesting, this, but I don't want to take up all the time of your podcast explaining it, but it's it's all there in the book. And there was a shift then, and the, the rich began to see the poor as a problem Rather than people who, who were in need of assistance, they were, you know, they might cause insurrection in, uh, in society. They had to be controlled. There were poor laws. Beggars were whipped in the streets. And, and, and it, that went on then from like the Elizabethan England right through to the Victorians. And in the formation of American society, there was, there was this attitude that the poor were in some peculiar way to blame for their own poverty. And what my book is trying to do is to say that spiritual dimension of the relationship between the rich and the poor, that's been lost. That's gone because a lot of the world is non-religious now and they, they discount that. I'm saying that, and I phrase it in the book in a way which is not religious in order to be accessible to the maximum number of people. I say that this kind of spiritual, reciprocal, mutual partnership kind of relationship between the rich and the poor uh, is something that we need to recover. And if we could do that, we will take the strengths of philanthrocapitalism, but temper them with this, you know, it's like marrying, it's marrying the head and the heart. 
and it's the material and the spiritual, and it's a much more human and holistic vision of philanthropy. Well, that is so interesting. I did not realize that. And you also talk about how and where today's philanthropists can recover this critical element of philanthropy. I wonder if you could talk about how they can recover this or who are some examples of people that are doing that today where they're recapturing the spiritual element. Yeah, well, there's an interesting example in the book of the head of uh, the Gates Foundation, Patty Stuncifer. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name because I've never met her. She was, you know, in charge of this mammoth, mega philanthropic foundation. And she used to look out the window in the headquarters in Washington, D.C. and see this van pull up outside at the same time every day and, and used to give out food to, the, um, to the, uh, the homeless people in the park. And she thought, well, I wonder what that is. And she found out about it. She started to give money to it and subscribe to it. And eventually the day came when the newsletter came from the organization and it said, we need a new chief executive. And so she packed up this mega mammoth job and went to work, you know, amongst ordinary poor people, getting her hands dirty. And one of the lessons that she offers is that she listens. She listens to what people want. She doesn't tell them what they need. She listens to what they want. And there are lots of examples. Warren Buffett's son, Peter, and his daughter-in-law, Jennifer, they run something called the Novo Foundation, which for a decade was, was, was a, a great example of marrying the heart and the head and, and, and listening to people. They wanted results. They wanted to measure things, but they listened. They understood that the people who are at the sharp end, who are, who are at the receiving end of difficult social situations, often have better ideas about how to get out of it than, uh, than academics uh, and professionals do. So a lot of it was about uh, about listening. I mean, the irony of the Buffetts, the Novo Foundation, is that because a lot of its money was dependent on, on the profits of, of Warren Buffett, and they crashed it early on in the COVID crisis, the, the, the Novo Foundation's now you know, started telling its clients what they ought to do. And it's gone, a, it's gone a bit top down instead of being more mutual. So it shows the kind of fragility and the fluidity of, of these situations and, and that philanthropy needs a constant corrective, really. It needs somebody saying. Do you remember that story about the beggar boy who used to be paid to stand next to the Roman general when he went through the triumphant arch on his victory march through Rome? And this boy was to stand at his side and his job was to say, remember you are but dust and to dust you will return. So that idea that no matter how great you are, no matter how, what a fantastic job you're doing in the world, you need a bit of humility. You need someone to remind you. And if you want to help the poor, you should listen to them. Well, a large portion of my audience, Paul, are nonprofit CEOs, executive directors, or development directors, as well as donors, volunteers, board members. What is one of the primary takeaways that you hope nonprofit leaders will gain from your book? The end of the book is full of practical examples of how you can marry the head and the heart, how the strategic philanthropy and the reciprocal philanthropy can be brought together into a more fruitful relationship. I mean, I won't go through them because there's a lot of detail there. But in summary, it's it's about listening and partnership and mutual respect. And instead of thinking, I've made all this money, and so I know how what's the best way to spend it, you need to think, well, no, maybe I don't know. Maybe I should go and listen first. What I've done in the book is I've, I've given lots of examples of philanthropists who do this and who don't do this. And the idea is that I'm hoping that philanthropists will read it and think, oh, well, maybe maybe I need to just adjust my approach a little in the light of this. 
Same with the non-profit leaders. They need to ask different things of philanthropists. Don't necessarily take the money that they want to give, large sum though it may be, for something which, in your heart, you know, because you've listened to your clients, isn't the best thing. You know, sometimes turn the money down. Sometimes try and suggest alternative strategies. And, and so the, the thing for nonprofit leaders is listen and have respect for the people that you're trying to help. Bring them onto representatives, onto your board. It's Sometimes it's about, you know, because we are currencies, pounds, not dollars. I, I often say it's about giving away power, not pounds. Well, you can say it's about giving away power as well as dollars. And so you need to do that. You need to listen and to have a model of partnership at the heart of what you're doing, as well as all the obvious things about, you know, measurement and evaluation and so forth. Well, I've really appreciated this deep dive into the history of philanthropy. Now, I'm curious too, how have your views, if they have changed at all, how have your views of philanthropy changed as a result of your research? I think I'm a bit more aware of what the pitfalls are. I first got interested in this area in the 1980s when I was the Times of London correspondent in Ethiopia during that terrible famine. So I've I've looked at aid agencies and development, and I'm aware of what works and what doesn't work, and, and what's your intuition is often wrong. I mean, I remember one great philanthropist who sent out a lot of chocolate drink, uh, malted chocolate drink in England, it's called Horlicks. Chocolate Horlicks. They sent it all out to Ethiopia because they thought that'd be very beneficial. And I went out to one refugee camp and I was w- with the aid workers and uh, having lunch with them. Uh, I saw this huge uh, store of this chocolate Horlicks. I said, what's all that? They said, well, Ethiopians don't like chocolate. They haven't, they've never had their palate corrupted by that, that sweet chocolate taste. So we, you know, we, can't, we can't get rid of it. We have to drink it all ourselves. So if that man had listened before he went out and sent the stuff out, you know, he'd have been a more effective philanthropist. So it's about that. It's about listening and not always assuming what your instincts tell you is right. Okay, one last question, Paul. We have been in the midst of this worldwide pandemic, right? And I'm curious from your perspective, how has COVID impacted philanthropy? Or in your opinion, how will it impact the future of philanthropy long-term? Well, it could go either way. It could go back to the old model or people could learn lessons as a result of it. And when you look at the kind of cooperation and the mutual help groups that are setting up, the way people in neighborhoods are helping each other, you know, you see the cooperative, benign side of humankind. So the pandemic is bringing that out in in lots of people. People could get selfish. They could try and kind of keep the vaccine to themselves, or they could say, no, we've got to take it out to the poor countries because let's face it, if the poor countries keep getting it and keep getting different mutations and they come back to the rich countries, we'll suffer in the end. So, you know, it's all that, there's an enlightened self-interest. But the other thing that I think has been noticeable about the, the pandemic is that it's highlighted the importance of the role of philanthropy. Because uh, if you look at, you know, the development of vaccines and that kind of thing, big pharmaceutical companies didn't want to spend money on these kind of projects because they were only affected by poor people. It doesn't matter about malaria because there's only poor people in, in far off countries who get it. So, so let's just concentrate on a cure for baldness or, or, or slimming pills. So that's a business problem. Government problem is, you know, these are faraway people. They, we, we don't really care about them. And anyway, uh, we're not going to be able to solve this long-term problem in the next five years, four years before the next election. So, so that you've got this problem that is not amenable to the market. It's not amenable to the state either. So who can help with that? That The third sector, philanthropy, 
philanthropy can innovate. It can put money into things without anybody saying, oh, that'll be a waste of money. That'll never work. They can take risks. And if you look at what's happened, you know, terrible way of putting it, but uh, philanthropy's had a very good pandemic. The last count was, I think, about 20 billion US dollars have gone from philanthropists into different different projects of, of alleviation or or of vaccines. I mean, look at look at the Gates Foundation has done fantastic things on developing different right. different vaccines. And uh, Gates has paid for the biggest manufacturer of vaccines in the world, which is in India, to produce you know low cost shots of the vaccine for you know thirty dollars a shot, so three dollars a shot. I mean, that's all stuff that. That, that, that it highlights the strength of philanthropy as as a pillar, a third pillar in society that that can do things that the government can't do and can do things that the market won't do. Well, thank you again for sharing your insights with us. What depth of knowledge you have on this topic? This has been so interesting. So, how can my listeners find out more about you and your book? Where would you send them? Well, if you look at me on Twitter, I'm at pval p v a double l. And on there, you'll see a link to the book's got a website, which is at uh, www.philanthropyatoz.com. It's all one word, philanthropy at Oz, is, is, it's spelled. But if you go on the Twitter thing, you'll find a link to that. And there, there's a lot of explanation about the book there. All the source notes for the book are there. The book would have been another 100 pages, 150 pages long if I'd put all the source notes in it. They're all on the internet, so you can click through to the to the sources. And that's the place to find out more about the book. And uh, I hope people will, because I've enjoyed uh, this writing project, uh, but I've, I also feel as I've, I've learned a lot from it. And uh, that there's a lot there, which a whole range of people could find, you know, will make, make their lives better, make their jobs better, make them do their jobs better, and just make the world a better place. Well, I'm hopeful, Paul, that a lot of people will read your book uh, just to give us all context of where philanthropy has come from in the Western world anyway, because it's so fascinating and it's so helpful as we move forward. So thanks again for being on the show and thanks for calling in all the way from Great Britain. Thank you very much. And uh, the full title of the book is Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.